The Mutual Recognition Agreement, MRA, has still not been signed between Europe and Switzerland. So, if you are distributing a medical device in Switzerland, you have to appoint a Swiss representative from May 26, 2021. So, Easy Medical Device is offering this service. Contact me per email at swiss at easymedicaldevice.com. Swiss, S-W-I-S-S, at easymedicaldevice.com. And we'll try to help you. Welcome to the Medical Device Made Easy podcast. I am Munir Lazuzi, a medical device expert specialized on quality and regulatory affairs. My mission is to help you learn how to place a compliant medical device on the market. For that, I share with you my experience and the one of others on this podcast. Are you ready for your dose of regulation and standard today? Okay, so let the show begin. Welcome to the Medical Device Made Easy podcast. Here is Munir Alazuzi from easymedicaldevice.com. And today, we'll help you to understand what is a clinical investigation. So we talked a lot about clinical evaluation report. Uh, we talked about PMCF. We talked about all those things. But we had not uh, talked too much about clinical investigation. And I have with me uh, Elena Quis, so CEO of QMED Consulting, who will help us to understand uh, what is a clinical investigation, how to, uh, to do that or not to do that. So... Uh, uh, the best, uh, the, the good tips or not. So, Ellen, welcome to the Medical Device Made Easy podcast. Thank you very much, Muni, and thank you for inviting me. Great. So thank you for, for coming and, and educating, if I can say, the audience in terms of that, because uh, you were with the podcast also coming to, to tell us more about clinical evaluation report, about PMCF, about all those things. Uh, and, and I think clinical investigation is also an important topic here uh, because uh, there are new rules, if I can say, that were implemented with the EUMDR. Uh, and the idea here is to make some clarity about, uh, about uh, this, uh, this, uh, this subject. But for people that don't know you, so can you make just a small introduction of yourself? Yes, sure. Uh, my name is Helene Kvie and I'm CEO of QMED Consulting, which is a consultancy and a CRO. So we are running clinical studies for all different kinds of medical device manufacturers and also hospitals, investigator initiated trials. And I do have a background as a cell biologist. I work with clinical investigations since 95 when I started working within medical devices. So the last 26 years now, I have performed clinical studies. So I have a long history from uh, when it was actually without any procedures, without anything, we just had the directive until today, which is more, much more structured, very close to GCP, very important process in the medical device development. So Sorry. I hope uh, it brings value. <laughs> Okay, so uh, I, I, I agree with you on the fact that uh, there is more clarity, if I can say, uh, in terms of, of these things. So uh, we know that the EUMDR is uh, more than double the double number of pages from the MDD and AIMDD. So uh, it means that there is more things. But the thing is, not, sometimes it's not more requirements, it's just more clarity also on some of the topics, uh, which is helping everybody, helping the regulators, helping the consultants, helping the manufacturers, because they know where to go. With the MDD, it was more, here is the objective here we, and you have to get, go there how you go there we don't know <laughs> you have to pave your way by yourself mm -hmm. and now it's giving you a bit of, of, of guidance which is also a great thing um, so for people that maybe first don't know clinical investigation what it is or clinical trials so can we make just a small definition of what it is what, what are we talking about when we talk about yes. clinical investigation clinical investigation is any 
are testings, uh, experiments on human beings per definition. And I actually, I have a small joke. Uh, when I do this as a training, I just did this Tuesday, a one-day training. And uh, I did state that also employees are human beings. So because there is a lot of testing going on also on employees, but it's actually all human beings are covered by both now the regulation and supported by the guideline ISO 14155. So all tests done on human beings. So, so this is an important statement here because um, we have a lot of companies maybe that have some devices that are not considered too dangerous, that are not considered, uh, if I can say, uh, the, not endangering the safety, if mm -hmm. I can say, of, of employees mm -hmm. or whatever. But um, we, as you've said, any test on human beings for a product that is not CE marked, that is not placed on the market as CE marked, uh, should go through a clinical investigation. So what is the... What is the point here where we say, oh, we test it on our employees, for example, and we say, okay, I have a new device here. Uh, can you please test it for me and just check if everything is fine? And yeah, what, yeah. What, is the, what is the situation here? Yeah, I get that question all the time. And it's, it's quite important because if you want to use the data for regulatory purpose, you run it as a clinical investigation. The MDR and the ISO standard, in my opinion, does not really cover or uh, is meant for the engineers that through testing on his, uh, on a, himself uh, try his algorithm on something, whatever it is. That is not covered by the regulation and the law. But if he wants to have, you know, 30 employees try this device, we are going to use that. Now I take software again because this is where I always run into the trouble. Uh, yes, this is a regulatory, this is key for your algorithm. Please have control. There is a meaning by having control of your data. You have to have sufficient amount and quality of data as input for your algorithm or any device. So that is the difference. If you're using it for regulatory purpose, so it's going to be in your technical file, please use the MDR and the ISO standard. But I suppose if they are, as you, as you mentioned, if they are using that for kind of a feasibility study just to check that it is working uh, without using those information for regulatory standards. So um, yeah. is it still covered by an ethical committee or all those kind of things that we need for a clinical investigation? Not in my opinion. If it, as I say, if it's the engineer who uh, I do have a client where they regularly test the product on themselves, it's not dangerous, then not at all. I, it's very safe. It's just to pull out the data, know these data, but they're not used either, right? So they're just dead data he makes every day. He check if he has fulfilled his uh, accomplishment that day and he just checks that the device still works. No, that is not covered by the regulation. Great. So uh, please don't use data that you get from your employees <laughs> without any or have an approval for it. <laughs> yeah, or have, exactly. You have an approval for, for that. So yeah. um, in terms of, of clinical investigation, uh, one thing that is also uh, that a lot of people are asking is about the number of subjects, the number of people that we need to have to enroll in our clinical investigation. So is there a magic number here or is there a, a, f a formula, if I can say? Yeah, I normally say that um, 50 is a good number okay. for a normal regulatory small pivotal study for a not so risky device but it all comes down to the biostatistics and there are different type of clinical investigations and they require different number of patients 
and you have to have sufficient amount and quality of data. That means you have to have a statistical rationale for the number of patients you're choosing, especially for the regulatory studies. If you go very early stage, the pilot and early feasibility, if you look into the guideline ISO 14155, the very early feasibility pilot studies, there you're trying to confirm your endpoints and you might want to see uh, how uh, risky is this clinical investigation. There you don't need any statistical rationale. You basically pick a number. It's normally between five and 12 and you don't have, you just do your statistics afterwards. And then you use that number or your, these data to support your statistical rationale. And I've seen all different kinds of, uh, I would say manipulations. It means it, that sounds a little negative, it isn't, but you, biostatistics can be turned in many different ways. And it's up to the notified bodies and the authorities to basically let you know if they accept it or not. And also sometimes the marketing and sales department when they realize the statistics that are behind your clinical studies, if you have too broad, if you have included too big a risk into your biostatistics and they're going to sell the product based on that, somebody who knows about biostatistics will tell you, hmm, maybe you should have done a little more patience than just the whatever it is then. But that is, it, it, you can normally... Uh, end up with a number about 50, between 50 and 75. And if you want to um, uh, minimize the kind of the variation and, and your data becomes stronger, it's between 75 and 150. Randomized clinical study, late, late regulatory, if you want to include that, is also 150 to 200 patients. So, so the challenge here for manufacturers is uh, to not pay too much money uh, because more you have, more subject you have, more money you have to pay. Uh, and but to be accurate enough, or to to have, it's why I'm saying the magic number is to say yeah. this is the number that will help you to minimize your budget, but to be accepted mm -hmm. by a notified body. Have you been? Uh, at any point challenged by a notified body to say, oh, this number is too low or uh, you have to increase or we don't accept that, etc. Actually, I've been challenged by the competent authorities when we are submitting for the clinical study because the notified body don't really see the protocols these days, you know, with the expert panels that, that will come. Uh, but right now it's the competent authorities that are pushing back if they see that this is a ridiculous number, you know. You are, <laughs> you are putting these numbers wrong. Please go and redo it. So that's why I see the pushback. And there are certain countries, Germany, also the Danish authorities, where we are working a lot up here in Scandinavia, do uh, French, French authorities, they push back if they don't find the statistics uh, in good order. The ethics committee is a little different because ethics committees, the way that they are composed uh, and the competences that are in the uh, ethics committee varies between countries. So, for instance, in Scandinavia, they are more evaluating the ethical concerns about an investigation, where if you go a little south of from where I am in Copenhagen, there are more technical specialists in the ethics committee, and they are sometimes local at the hospitals also, where you have some very good biostatisticians sitting and evaluating. But in some ethics committee, they look mostly at the patient information, the wordings, the 
and don't really look into the statistics. So you have to know where you're submitting and what pushback you you might get. So, so it's. I mean, I, I think it's good this this system because uh, you are not starting your study without getting this approval of the number and everything. So that you are not, if I can say, uh, losing money, or mm. you can even decide, oh, it's too expensive for me. I will need more things, so I can I have to stop now. No need to start this yeah. kind of thing, etc. Yeah. So I think it's a it's a good system just to validate your strategy, and then the notified body, I suppose, cannot say anything about that because at the end uh, it was validated by the competent authority mm. and by the ethical committee. Um, I did actually, I did have one notified body actually pushing back, but that's because some of these studies are quite long. And in the meantime, if there are, um, there are some guidelines published on specific products that dictates a number of, of patients, we do have some of these heart valves and other uh, standards, they don't dictate, but they emphasize a certain size of the studies. And if you haven't reached that, I actually experienced that there was a notified body that pushed back and say, come back when you have, and then I can't remember that. I think we'll double up from, from what they had. So they had to go and find a new notified body, basically. Okay. No, I think it's, uh, it's, it's important that, that then to say, uh, have the right number so that you are not pushed back. You, are, you have no issue and, and your planning is, is fine because we have a project so there is a planning and we are expecting to move forward and in terms of planning how how long for example for example somebody that is listening now and say i need to do a clinical investigation but i have never done that before how long they should expect uh, to have their clinical uh, investigation uh, done if i can say is it like six months or is it like one year or what what is the, the number of that yeah normally we say that you know and it's very uh, at different kinds of trials, right? You can have 1,500 uh, uh, patient study and you can have a 10, 20 patient study. They're completely different. But because the organization around it, the administration varies. But if we take a mid-size, you can within four to six months prepare a clinical study. So the preparation, make sure your documentation is in place. Hopefully now under the MDR, you have your statistics in place. You have your clinical development plan. You do have a synopsis for the study that you would like to prepare for. So, and I actually just heard today that there are some competent authorities that will actually like to see your clinical evaluation plan when yeah. you are submitting. Yes. I saw that. I heard that also. <laughs> yeah. Clever little thing. Because that's where you get, you know, you make a plan. Then you effectuate and then you wrap up and you let people know how did it go. It makes sense, right? Then depending on how many patients you need, how many sites you have included or is available, we do have studies where patients are really rare. We have one center in each country and just to reach 80 patients, that takes a long time, right? But in an average study, you should have a good flow of at least, you know, it's difficult to say they are so different, but you have to have a good flow. I wouldn't, between not less than six months to 12 months of enrollment of this 30, 50 patient study, then if you need follow-up, you have to add that. And then you need to wrap up, clean your data, make sure everything is closed. You have to write up a report because now you have to upload it into Udemy. <laughs> so, yeah. you know. It's uh, so it takes years. It's long-term planning, and yeah. Um, yeah. Each, each time, each time I have a customer that is asking me about that. Usually, we take a, a, a mean number of two years to say yeah. the 
uh, starting mm -hmm. preparation, the recruitment of patients also to have the recruitment of the site, to visit the site, everything is fine, to start the study, then to close the study, then to wrap up everything and to make yeah. the report. Um, it's, it's not something that will take just six months. So it's why uh, people have to no. understand that, that it's a, yeah. a minimum two years or, or one, one year and a half, two years project. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, there is also, as we said, the budget out of that. So to maintain that, to have uh, uh, the facility working and to pay also the, yeah. the services of, of companies. Exactly. And um, here we have uh, we have some companies that maybe wants to do that by themselves. So do they need somebody to help them or can they do that by themselves? Because you said also that your organization is like a CRO. Mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. um, are, are, do we, do we, what is the difference of doing it by itself or getting the help of a CRO? Yeah, it, definitely companies can, can run this by themselves. Also, if they're small companies, if they have uh, resources with competences, so within that medical field that knows about clinical research and that you have a large enough organization or somebody else to help you. Now we're stepping out of the organization, but you have to make sure that, for instance, the monitoring is unbiased. That means that you can have monitors yourself inside the company, but you will have to have some second part, maybe within the company or an external party that reviews the monitoring visit reports to make sure that there is a quality control. But definitely you can do this uh, by yourself. I have clients that are one or two man bands, you know, really small companies, they're running studies themselves. Uh, so it's possible. Yeah, I had also some, some customers that were asking me about that. And there were, for example, some dentists that create their own uh, mm -hmm. medical device, their own products. Yeah, yeah. And they said to me, oh, uh, I, can, I can make all the, the, I can enroll all the patient and do the surgery by myself, I can say. And I told him it's, it's not really recommended because mainly they are biased because it's their mm -hmm. product, it's there. Mm -hmm. they, will yeah. they will try to have the best thing. And also yeah. they know the product, they know the methodology, they know everything. So... Having somebody else doing that uh, will really show if this their product is really um, yeah. it's feasible to use that for anybody and not only for the surgeon that created that. So um, it, it's mainly I suppose something also that is it, is it something that is mentioned on the ISO fourteen one five five about this case about yes. uh, about uh, conflict of interest or this kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. There is a clear distinction between certain activities where you have to have that unbiased uh, angle. And yes, for sure, I will have somebody else use the product also to get objective data, right? That's very important. Uh, normally, also what I see is that, and the monitoring, as I just mentioned, and the what really where companies, the small companies, if they don't have the experience, they don't have the procedures in place, there are certain, you have to have the full package then, right? It's, it's about 30 on top of your own, uh, you know, your design control, clinical study running that is between 20 to 30 different SOPs and templates and forms and work instructions to be compliant. So to manage that, build it up, maintain it, being a two-man company, yes, that's difficult. Then you have, then you should have done, you have done it before, so to speak, right? You have the experience, you have all of these things that you can just, uh, uh, make available to the company and uh, then it, it can be possible. But I do see companies also that try to do it on themselves, by themselves, when they don't have the resources and the competences in-house and then they get an inspection. 
that is quite complicated because yeah. it can seem right to the companies because they're really doing their best. But if they don't have the experience, there is a very high risk of them not complying to the full the full picture yeah. because it, it can be done with research mind. You know, and research and clinical investigations are two very, very different things. So the research can be good. So there is a doctor, he's conducting his research and said, this is clinical data. Yes, it's clinical data, but it's not regulatory clinical data. So that is where I see the, the one of the big, uh, I would say hurdles, uh, problems basically in this understanding between regulatory and research, you know. No, I think it's 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 a good point here. It's it's uh it's something that where where we are going, as you said, from research where it's more like um, theoretical yeah. or something uh, that is yeah. uh, on a laboratory. Where here we are going now to to pass to the human, and here the objective is safety and performance of your device. So you are making some claims. We have to check if the claims are fine, and we are using that on humans. So we have to verify uh, if this is yeah. uh, something that is is working on on, on human. Um, one thing that I I. I'm, had also a question about is um, I, I I have my clinical investigation. I do my clinical investigation. I, I spend maybe half a million on that. At yeah. the end, it fails. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> something not good. Should no. I publish the data or should I make them like um, hide them and maybe start a new one or, or something like that? So what is the rule here? Yeah. The rule here is that you should make any attempt to publish positive, negative, and neutral data. If this happens, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I do think that with the Udemy database that there will be a little more traceability in between that because it's very, I know it's very painful. Normally it's not just half a million, right? We have very, very yeah. expensive clinical studies, millions of dollars Oof, that fails, right? And it's really something that you don't want to talk about your stock options go down. Yeah, and exactly. <laughs> but there is, um, there is a great value for the society and the patients and other people that are working within the same field to know where did it fail? Why did it fail? So I think it makes good sense and I definitely support publishing positive, negative and neutral data. So um, in terms of, uh, of the EUMDR, um, we had some rules on um, do uh, when you have to do a clinical investigation mm -hmm. for some products there is an exemption to say you don't need to do any clinical investigation can you make a summary of that of what, what, who should do that if i can say who, which product should do that and which product are exempt from it even if it's for example an implantable product so is there a kind of a list here there is uh, there are different considerations to make there is the class 3 and 2b implants where Clinical investigations are always expected, except if you can claim uh, clinical data are always expected. There are some exemptions. Uh, there are the well-established technologies. There are also where you can, uh, I do think, I haven't seen it in practice, but I do hear rumors about equivalence principles also on these high-risk class products when it's within your own, um, how do you say that, your own production. Yeah. Uh, and I also, um, I do see examples of this that we have said many times, well, there will be no contracts in between manufacturers, right? Yeah. Because that's what is required. But I actually do see examples where companies go together 
by transferring one product to MDR, let somebody else do, you know, the clinical study. They borrow the PMS as PMS data back into the original manufacturer, but on the other hand, they get to use some of the technologies. So that's how it is, you know, with with the industry and people, they find their way <laughs> within the rules. So I think that there is uh, openings for, for this, for lower risk class products. You can still claim uh, equivalence if you have still technical documentation to the other product by using different methods. I also hear rumors from notified bodies or visits after notified bodies where they try to ask the manufacturers to still use the equivalence principle, even though that I thought it was more or less gone with the MDR, right? That That's how we've been talking about it for years. But I think it will find a balance because there are some of these products are really not, doesn't make any sense to make a clinical study, basically. Yeah, I, I, the, the idea, um, yeah, as we said, so the idea is that uh, we should not torture people more than yeah. what we have done. So we will not do a clinical investigation to torture more people when we know that everything is fine or we know that this product was already on the market before. We know that yeah. it's just a, an extension from a product that is already on the market, so yeah. there is no need to do yeah, that. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, I suppose it's something that, uh, that uh, everybody should, should understand. Um, we know also that when we see that it's a low-risk device, class 1, class 2A, maybe there is no risk mm. at all. So... We have to find other solutions than the clinical investigation, I suppose. Um, so, yes. so there is. It's it's. It looks like it's logical. It's not like uh, the, the EUMDI is not really crazy on this kind of thing to say. I need that. You, you are mandat It's mandatory for mm -hmm. you to do that without any reason, which is, I suppose, a, a good thing. Um, in terms of uh, those activities, so we need a clinical investigation. We need a clinical evaluation report. We need the PMCF. My product now is on the market. I am CE marked. So do I need to redo a clinical investigation at a certain time or is it the end? I don't need to do that anymore. Or what's, what's the situation now of post-market then? Yeah, there is one thing that uh, companies sometimes uh, forgets in, in their way of trying to avoid uh, clinical investigation. It is that to be able to sell your product, sometimes you actually need clinical data. <laughs> because you're in competition with other companies that might have clinical data or the purchasers at the hospital. So that final step into the market might require that you have some clinical data combined with some health economic data. But in the regulatory space, for sure these products that are approved by other means than based on clinical evidence, they would need some kind of program, collection of clinical data in what we call a PMCF program. So you will have to demonstrate to your notified body that you on a regular basis, that you can collect data and then ensure that your safety and performance requirements are fulfilled. There are also for high-risk class products, there can be, uh, it can be a good idea to, for instance, if there is a, a follow-up period on, on your patients. And, and there is normally that on these high-risk class products, you can continue following these patients in a PMCF program. So that's a quite easy way, easy, nothing is easy, but you just, you keep on following the patients for hip implants, for all the cardiology implants, you know, make sure that your patients are still well from a safety perspective. 
And then um, if you go to the lower risk class products, we have the, I know I forgot the number, MDCG uh, 2020 slash six, maybe, yeah. where there are these, uh, this hierarchy of different data. You have to put up a plan where you show how you can use these different activities, proactive activities and also reactive. So example of that, Complaints are reactive method. A reactive method to use it comes to you automatically. Hopefully, if you have your processes in place, you also have to have some active methods, and that's according to the media guideline for post-mine surveillance. That you reach out to your users, and depending on your product, you will set together a program, a plan, PMCF plan for what activities to uh, follow up upon, year by year, actually. It's an ongoing process. You are never done. So if you, for instance, have uh, you have to provide an update of your clinical evaluation plan every second year, I might um, set up, uh, we call it an umbrella protocol, yeah. that I, every second year I have an ongoing protocol. Every second year at three sites, I push a button, I get 30 patients, I get assured. My patients are fine. The product is working. I make a report. I put that into my PMCF report. So that's a way to do it. But make it as easy as possible, repeatable. You don't have to redo it every time. But it really depends on the product, how you can set it up. Ready cells. There are so many different ways. Surveys. Surveys, a uh, good selling tool uh, to get out there and talk with your users. Set up a survey. But remember, it has to be scientifically valid 10 questionnaires are not enough you might need 150 to 300 questionnaires sent out uh, to be able to get some statistic valid input but you can then check your claims in this regard uh, part of uh, some of these softer uh, statements benefits around your product so put the puzzle together not just think about investigation but then it is part of the investigation but there are different methods that you can use no, I think it's 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 what what is interesting with with all that is that um, I talk about difference between MDD and MDR um, mm -hmm. is the fact that there is not a lot of new things that were coming with the MDR. It's mainly what we had to do also with MDD, but it's enforced now. I don't know why. It's something that because PMCF was existing before, all those mm -hmm. things CR was existing before, but now the notified bodies and I had this experience with a lot of notified bodies now they are really scrutinizing those documents, they are rejecting them, they are pushing back a lot of things when before we didn't have this kind of situation. It was mm -hmm. more like, oh, you have a clinical evaluation report, it's fine. PMCF, we never talked about that at all. So it's not some, something that uh, anybody was talking about. Mm -hmm. And now we start to talk about all those elements that where, where, where we say that, yeah, the EUMDR asked for more clinical data and it's proved because as you've said, also authorities are now asking for clinical evaluation yeah. plan, they're asking yeah. for this and that. Well, I never saw that before. So it's, yeah. it's we, we, never. It's, it's why what surprises me is that it was existing, but now it's really enforced. It's really something that yeah. was uh, uh, in place. And with also the addition of one layer, which is the expert panel now also. Mm -hmm. Before we had just the notified body that was reviewing everything. Now we have the expert panel. Can we talk about that quickly? What, what is an expert panel and what is the role of this expert panel? Mm -hmm. It's still, uh, it's actually less blurry to me still, but per regulation, it's a, it's a panel of competent people within certain fields. Let's say heart valves. 
coronary stents. These are big cardiology fields, right? That they are specialized within that field that will scrutinize your protocol, as I understand it, for your investigation and also your clinical evaluation plan. And as you say, it's an extra layer. So in your submission process, there is this extra time that you have to add to your to your process. But so it actually it um, it resembles a little bit the FDA way, but there you can ask them before, right? <laughs> you can you can basically call FDA and say, I need a heart valve expert. Can I speak to him today? <laughs> exactly. There is a pre pre submission or pre pre notification pre, yeah, pre discussion, yeah, exactly. so you can have a meeting with FDA. They can guide you. They can show you the way, yeah. etc. Which is not existing in Europe, and uh, yeah, it's something no, maybe it's that we really need, but it's yeah. not existing now. So this is on the back end of the uh, of the uh, actually creation of the documents, where with the FDA you can come with suggestion, and then you can debate and you can make more detailed or in the direction that FDA would like to see it. So this is different, basically. And they will then return back to the notified body with that advice. Yeah, I remember we had also a, a podcast episode with Basil Acra from uh, yeah. from Tunic now, but was from TUFS before. And we discussed about expert panel and more, mainly the point was, uh, yeah, we have notified bodies that are training themselves now also for reviewing clinical evaluation report, reviewing documentation. We ask them to have specialized people for that to have, because we have some MDR yeah. codes then, and they have to be qualified for those MDR codes. And then adding this additional layer, the, the, we had the discussion and it was like, I don't really know what is the additional benefit of that but uh, yeah. for people that are interested there is a page now on the on the um, so uh, expert panel page on the uh, European Commission website mm -hmm. where you have mm -hmm. the sections of each expert panel group and the names of the people that are inside so that you can also verify uh, yeah. who is really doing the evaluation for yeah. for your products yeah. um, I mean it's more transparency but it's also something that we don't we are not sure I will see with the experience after maybe one year or two years we'll see if this is really something that has some benefits or if it's just an additional bureau Bureaucracy, uh, bureaucracy element that is in, in, in yes. place there. We will have um, to wait. I think we, we covered all what we wanted to talk about today. Um, the only mm -hmm. thing I want, because you have a lot of experience in clinical investigation in that. So how can you, how, how are you helping your, your customers or maybe future customers that want to initiate a clinical investigation or maybe do also clinical evaluation report? So what, what are you offering as a service for, for helping them? Uh, we do... Um we run studies, basically. If you call me and say, I have a device, Helene, I don't know how to do it. I say, send me the specifications and probably pay my invoices. <laughs> then I can run the study for you. You will get the data back. So it's from the idea, basically, to the end report and back into your technical documentation. But I think what we can also do, because we're also a consultancy company, is that we can help you with the other documents that are behind. So on the way, connect back into your clinical evaluation and your all your plans and reports and all these things. So, but we do have these two uh, separate uh, sections and we can do a small part of it or we can do it whole, the whole package. Uh, I think what we do a lot these days is to translate the guidelines into what does it actually say? What, what are not to scare people, but to make them aware about it, what it is that they step into. So we do a lot of training. We do a lot of one-to-one -one on the MDCD guideline. Uh, uh, also on the MDR, uh, we do actually a lot of training of the hospitals. So prepare them for the new regulation. 
because they uh, we for many years have been training in the ISO 14155 guideline, but now it's been transferred into being a law text, right? So that understanding uh, and how they can expect that the manufacturers will maybe in another way come to them you know, they have to be properly dressed to understand also the law when they're being inspected. So basically, we can take it from idea to uh, to to the end, to the report. Oh, it's, uh, it's great. And, and, and you have also, I, I saw some of the videos on the YouTube channel about uh, where you are uh, reading, if I can say, the MDCG yeah. guidance and trying to yeah. explain that to people. So if you have some difficulty to read those guidance, so <laughs> look at those videos and Ellen's yeah. providing that. And you have also a podcast a podcast episode, I mean, a podcast series. So uh, so don't hesitate to go also to the QMED podcast uh, to, to, yeah. to also look at uh, what, uh, what Ellen is doing. So... Um, Ellen, any last words for advice for uh, clinical investigation for, for manufacturers or even UMDR? I think, um, I think um, good advice is to read the guidelines. The MDCD guidelines are very helpful. I still have to digest the last one here uh, from April. Question and answers for clinical investigation. Yeah, yeah there was a there was also good, good points questions inside. afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> That uh, and then um, also an advice is not to. It's more not more difficult than it sounds. We need data, uh, and we need a lot of new people also to be able to manage this system. So I really just encourage people to jump into it and then call when they get in trouble. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's great, and yeah. I, I will put I will put on the show notes all the links for uh, those guidelines and also the the, the profile for Ellen mm -hmm. uh, and um, uh, for yeah. QMED um, on on the show notes so that you can go and contact the Elena directly. Um, and uh, yeah, if you have any questions, so please reach out to her. I'm not an expert on clinical investigation at mm -hmm. all, uh, so if I had anything to do with clinical investigation, I would delegate that to Ellen anyway. So, <laughs> so don't, don't, don't ask me for for that. Ask Ellen directly. It's, it's easier. <laughs> Um, okay, Ellen. So really, thank you for, for your help on that. I, I suppose, I hope this helped a lot of, of the people. Um, and uh, yeah, if, if there is anything, so as I've said, uh, don't hesitate to go to the show notes. There is all the details. Uh, don't hesitate also to go to the YouTube channel uh, if you want to just support by a like or uh, provide also a comment. Uh, and uh, also to the podcast uh, the podcast uh, audio uh, platform uh, if you have also some uh, some some comments there so uh, great so thank you for that okay ellen so really it was a pleasure to have you on the on the show and uh, i hope i wish you a nice day thank you very much and again thank you for inviting me you're welcome have a good day thanks for listening so if you like this episode please provide a review on the platform where you are listening to it and also don't forget to share it with your colleagues Thank you very much.